Today, we continue our series, Lion Chaser, and uh, we've already talked about defying odds, facing fears, overcoming adversity, and embracing uncertainty. And I wish that I could just let you see some of the emails that I get from you when when we talk about some of these things. And the, the, the best part of the whole deal is when you come up to me and you say, uh, you've been you've been hanging out at our house or you've been listening to my wife and I talk in our private moments or how do you know that, that we're dealing with some of this stuff? And uh, the, the answer is I don't, but the, the, the true answer is the word of God is very relevant for today if it's treated the right way and hopefully we do that around here. And um, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at seizing opportunities and looking foolish, which are things that uh, certainly Christians struggle with as well. And today we're going to talk about taking risks. And I hope to teach you a principle today or to, to shine a light on something today for you that, that when you see it, I hope you just go, oh my goodness, I never thought about it like that before. I'll kind of alert you when we get to that point. When I, when I heard this for the first time, I thought, you know, I never put that together. Um, it's really good stuff. But I want to start by talking about what happened on October 31st in the year 1517. That is the year that Martin Luther walked up to uh, castle church in wittenberg germany and he nailed his 95 theses on the door and one of the things he did was to challenge the church he attacked the church in the area of indulgences and it's interesting whenever you talk to if you, particularly a person who's grown up catholic has never had anyone tell them about indulgences it's it's interesting they, they're not taught that part uh, they're basically taught well, I don't know that. I'm not Catholic. I can't really say that. I started to say they're taught that Luther wasn't a good guy, but I don't know that they're taught that necessarily. I know that they don't know very much about Luther. Um, if you grew up Catholic, you probably haven't heard a whole lot about Luther, but he, he nails these 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, and he, he really went after indulgences, and an indulgence worked like this. The priest uh, would tell the people, uh, he, he basically sold forgiveness. It would work like this. If you wanted to... Um, cheat on your wife you could go do that and then to have your sin forgiven for having done that you would come in and you would give a, a set amount of money to the offering and you were taught through the church that your sins were absolved in fact the, the terminology was the moment the coin hits the plate your sin has been forgiven that was called indulgences uh, that, they, and so the, the church sold those to people consequently all those great cathedrals and all those great um, um, uh, architectural wonders over in Europe with the flying buttresses and all these great buildings that you see many of those were built through the sale of indulgences Luther saw this and said this cannot be and he set out to attack that and to set that all straight well what happened was he got excommunicated um, he basically had his life threatened and they put him on trial and, uh, you know, it wasn't a good thing for Luther. Um, it, was, it was pretty touch and go there for a while. But that one act of courage led to a domino effect and came to, to uh, spark what we know as the Ref- Reformation. And that's why we have churches like Cross Lane today. The, the term Protestant comes out of what Luther did when he protested um, and at Wittenberg. Now, you may have already known that, but maybe you didn't, and I hope that you just got a little bit of an education. That was free, by the way. It didn't cost you anything, free material. Uh, on April 18th, 1945, uh, uh, um, a factory owner named Oscar Schindler had a list of 1,097 names, and they were all typed out. 800 men 
297 women, and he rescued them from Nazi concentration camps all throughout that campaign. When uh, Oskar Schindler died, he died penniless. Uh, He was completely broke, and um, he had lost everything. But that one act of courage resulted in a domino effect, and there are now 6,000 people from the... um, Descendants of the Schindler Juden, basically. They, that's what's happened since he's passed away, is that, that those people went on to you know, have families, and, and they, the, the list has grown of the number of people who are descendants. On December 1st, 1951, a young seamstress named Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama, got on a bus, and she was sitting there, and the, the, the custom, the law, was that uh, if a white person, uh, Miss Parks was a person of color, and when a white person got on the bus, it was expected of her, there were no seats left to give up her seat and let the white person have that seat, which to me, I just cannot fathom living in a country where that could happen. You know, I just can't imagine. That was just a little before my time. Um, some of you may remember that very well. But um, she refused to do it. And she was arrested and she lost her job. But that one act of courage had a domino effect. Uh, It inspired citywide boycotts. It resulted in a trial, a court battle. And segregation was soon ruled two years later to be unconstitutional. It is small acts of courage that change the course of human history. Somebody takes a risk, it has a domino effect, and things change. We think about people like Luther and and Rosa Parks and Oscar Schindler, and we think that they're great, courageous, heroic people, and they are great, courageous, heroic people. But when Rosa Parks woke up that morning, she didn't say to herself, I'm going to go be a history maker today. She didn't say that. Oscar Schindler didn't have any idea that he was going to alter the course of history with the list that he had of all these names of people that he wanted to rescue. Martin Luther, I don't think Martin Luther thought that years later, centuries later, we would talk about him in such glowing terms as a man who changed the course of the church and changed the way people would worship from from then on out. I don't think he woke up that morning and said, hey, I'm going to go make history today. They were just ordinary people. They didn't know they were making history, but what they did, they took a risk. And that risk had a domino effect. Over the course of this series, we've used some of, the, uh, some of the tales from one of the most courageous stories, I think, in Scripture. And we've used it as a springboard for our remarks all through this series. And I've read it every week, and I want to continue to do that just because I don't want you to ever forget Beniah. I don't ever, I mean, when this series is long over and we've moved on to other things, I want Beniah to be a part of your life. I want you to think Uh, like a lion chaser and I want to read this to you again 2 Samuel 23 verse 20 and 21 Benaiah son of Jehoiada was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits he struck down two of Moab's best men he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion and he struck down a huge Egyptian although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand Benaiah went against him with a club he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Scripture goes on to detail Benaiah's military career, and, and uh, it's really quite impressive. He, was, he achieved the role of, of the captain of David's bodyguard. He goes on to become the commander-in-chief of the army of Israel. 
Uh, he becomes one of the most decorated uh, warriors in, in the whole history of Israel. Now, here's what I want you to, to get this morning. This is what, I, what we really need to understand is that the genealogy of success can always be traced back to risk. The genealogy of success can always be traced back to risk. There are three risks recorded in 2 Samuel 23. He takes on the Moabite warriors. He chases the lion, and he goes after the Egyptian. They're all risks, and Benaiah could have easily run away from any one, if not all three of those. He could have easily um, said, no, I'm not going to do that. But lion chasers take risks. And what we need to think about in our own life, I think, is to see that many of the good things that, that happen to you trace back to the few risks that you have taken in your life. You think about some of the things great that have happened in your life. Your marriage is one of them. I mean, the fact that you guys, when you said, okay, I'm going to summon up the courage to ask her to marry me, you know, there's risk in that. And, and if you don't ask, you don't get this wonderful life made and you don't get to have kids and you don't get to see them grow up and you don't get to experience all the things that you get to experience as a married couple. Cross Lane takes risks. We try to be a church that takes risks. Um, uh, it was a risk. If you knew anything about the circumstances when we built the building that's right out here, huge risk when we built that building. It was, a, it was a big risk to hire Kyle, not because Kyle was sketchy of character, because we don't believe that. But we'd never had, as long as I'd been here, we'd never had a third staff person. Wondered how in the world we would pay for him. Um, but that's, you know, God has blessed that over and over again because we were willing to step out and, and take a risk. We, we changed the kind of the style around here and the way we do things in an effort to become uh, more relevant, more strategic, and, and, and to be something that when people, to be a little different than, than the rest of the churches in town. Not, not that the other churches in town are bad because they are the way they are. Please hear me when I say that. It's not that we think they're bad. It's, it's not. We just think that there needs to be a different way, a different, that, that when someone walks in here that's been to some of the other churches and, and they can't connect with Christ there, that they can walk in here and maybe here with with our style and the way we do things they say you know what that resonates with me and that i i'm able to connect with god when i walk in here i've, I've had people tell me that and so it was a huge risk for us to change the way we do things but god comes behind that and you can always trace back in through success you can see the risks that were taken Matthew 25, verse 14 is where we're going to really start this morning. If you want to turn there, go ahead and do that. We'll pick, there, pick up there in just a minute. But let's put risk in biblical context this morning. We tend to, tend to think about risk in human terms. But risk is really a dimension of righteousness. And it may be one of the most spiritual tasks that we endeavor to undertake on a, on a regular basis. And it is truly at the heart of holiness this idea of risk the parable of the talents jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven and he puts it in these terms verse 14 of matthew 25 again it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them to one he gave five talents of money to another two talents and to another one talent each according to his ability now i know that if you've grown up in church you've heard this story Okay, what I need you to do is I need you to lock in because you're going to learn something from this story that I've read this many, many times. Hopefully what I teach you this morning, you're going to go, oh my goodness, I've never seen it like that before. 
The man who had received the five talents, this is verse 16, went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, if you really want to appreciate this parable, you need to realize that one talent is the equivalent of 20 years labor salary, a day labor salary. Okay, one talent equals 20 years of day labor salary. So this servant that receives five talents receives 100 years worth of salary. Now you just take a minute, do a little quick math in your head about what your salary is, multiply that times 100 years, and think about somebody leaving that in your care. And I I think that the guy with five talents is way more impressive. What happens with him is way more impressive than what happens with the guy who gets one talent because putting 100 years salary on the line is way more impressive than putting 20 years salary on the line. He had so much more to lose, but here's what you need to understand. He had so much more to gain. We continue, verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So this made the master happy. This idea that he had a hundred years worth of wealth and he risked it made the master happy verse 22 the man with two talents also came master he said you entrusted me with two talents see i have gained two more his master replied well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful with a few things i will put you in charge of many things come and share your master's happiness now here's the question that i want to ask you before we go any further i just want you to think about the idea of faithfulness and if i ask you is is being faithful is that a defensive posture or an offensive posture just answer that in your head do you think faithfulness is is a defensive thing if i'm going to be faithful i'm it's it's defensive i've got to i got to protect or is faithfulness an offensive thing i got to be honest with you when i answered that question in my head the answer to me i had assumed up until i started getting ready for this that faithfulness involved being defensive now let me give you a definition of faithfulness within the context of this parable. Faithfulness is risk, and risk is faithfulness. I think we have a tendency to think of faithfulness in defensive terms. I, I know I did. How many of you would say that you thought about faithfulness in defensive terms? Can I see? I, everybody that I've talked to prior to getting ready for this morning uh, when I've asked them this question, they've said, well, no, I, I, would, I would think it would be about protecting what I've got. You know, I want to I I kind of hunker down a little bit. I think that a lot of us would say that faithfulness is holding the fort. Faithfulness is maintaining the status quo. Faithfulness is hanging on to what you have. That's faithfulness. And yet, biblically, nothing could be further from the truth. Faithfulness, biblically, is return on investment. That's how this passage defines faithfulness faithfulness is minimize is not minimizing risk it's maximizing risk because it maximizes reward 
You know what I want to keep us away from around here? I want to keep us away from the idea of having a savings mindset. I don't want our church to, to get into a mode where we think we've, we've got to protect what we have. And that if we have a, a certain amount of money, that we've got to make sure we don't lose that amount of money. I, I've been around churches where that's how they think. I think Christ calls us to a, an investment mindset. Risking what we have to maximize the reward. Verse 24, then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, if you have a pen in your hand, circle that word. Because I want to show you something about that word in just a minute. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put, your, put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have, it, have received it back with interest. In my head, I always want to put in at least, at least I would have gotten it back with interest. You see the mindset, investment versus risk? or versus savings verse 28 take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth this is some of the harshest language in the whole of the gospel and when you look at it at face value it's really pretty shocking this guy brought back exactly what had been entrusted to him he didn't lose any of it i mean if you put a hundred years wages in my hands and just for the sake of this argument let's call that a million dollars you put a million dollars in my hand you say hey i want you to i want i'm leaving this with you and i know i understand as you leave it with me you're going to come back at some point I would think the whole time, take care of this and make sure that he gets back every penny. And I would think that when I saw this master coming back and I was going to hand him back his money, and I, one of the first things I would say is, here it is, all of it is still here. Isn't that the way you would think? All of it is still here. I, we didn't, I didn't lose any of it. And I would expect the master to say, hey, way to go. I know I can trust you. That's not what happens to this guy. Now, I remind you, this is a story that Jesus told. And so as he's explaining the kingdom of heaven and how it works and what God's about and what he wants us to be about, when he starts talking about this servant who went into a mindset of protect, I got to protect, I got to, his idea of faithfulness was defensive. Jesus calls him wicked. And if we're really honest, it's passages like this that kind of confuse us a little bit. Just a a note here that if you ever run into a passage that you would say is hard, you read it and you say, man, that's hard. I I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm having trouble getting a grip on this passage. Then I would, my advice to you is that you just 
chase after that passage and you stay in it and you just keep reading it and the more uncomfortable it makes you just stay in it and keep reading it because the odds are very very good that God wants to teach you something in that passage and so we read this and it's it makes us a little uncomfortable it's it's like you know that I know Jesus is saying it but I'm not sure I, I I'm it's not all adding up to me we'll, we'll come back to this in a minute I told you a couple weeks ago about Dr. Rosen. He wrote this book, If Only, and he talks about, he makes a distinction between two types of of regret, regret of inaction and regret of action. A regret of action is doing something that you wish you hadn't done. And we've all done that. You know, we've all said, I can't believe I did that. You know, what was I thinking? I can't believe I said that. What was going through my mind that made me think that was an acceptable thing to say? You ever thought that way? But there's another kind of regret that can last a long time, and that is the regret of inaction. It's when you had an opportunity and you didn't take it, and for the rest of your life, you say to yourself, man, what was I thinking? How could I let that go? How could I let that get past me? In biblical terms, we need to understand the difference. Regret of action is a sin of commission and regrets of inaction is a sin of omission something you should have done but you didn't do the church has fixated on sins of commission and so focused on the idea of not doing anything wrong i think there are a lot of churches and a lot of people in churches that are scared to death they're going to do the wrong thing they're so focused on on making sure that they don't sin that they don't do anything. Martin Luther said, sin boldly. Did he mean go out and and sin and commit sin and just live it up? No, that's not what he meant. What he meant was pursue God with a passion and do something big for him. And know that if you, along the way, sin in some way, he's big enough to overcome it. But don't let your fear of sin keep you from doing a big thing for God. We get so caught up on don't do this and don't do that and I gotta make sure, oh, I can't believe it. I don't wanna do that. Don't wanna make that mistake. And if we're not careful, we end up taking a really pharisaical approach to the whole idea of faith. Think of this. Many of us treat holiness, it's holiness by subtraction subtracting something from your life you say you know and that happens with us we we have things that come up in life you know we'll we'll identify something and say you know that that probably shouldn't be there i probably need to you know in your quiet time or in your prayer time god jesus may kind of point you in a specific area of your life and say you know you probably shouldn't do that and you say you know lord you're probably right I, I should and i need to work on that i really do need to cut that out that's something that needs to i need i just need to confess it and repent and and move on and i just need to leave that behind and and you're probably right i need to get i need to get rid of that and so there is holiness by subtraction but it's holiness by multiplication that is at the heart of the parable that jesus tells here and it's at the heart of what the gospel is all about the wicked servant was focused on action and regrets what if i lose what i have what if i don't what if he comes back and i'm not able to put in his hands everything that he left with me that was his fear and the master said that that was wickedness 
So wickedness is burying our talents. Wickedness is viewed as coming back with the same amount that you had. Evil is the failure to risk. Evil is playing it safe. It is not stepping out when God calls you to step out. Now, we don't often look at it in those kind of terms, but this is really what the gospel is about. You've heard, quote, no guts, no glory. That's kind of where the, the tagline on our sermon series comes from, living with guts for the glory of God. We, we understand that, that if we live life with no guts, then God is not going to get any glory. I think God calls us to be the kind of people that don't bury our talent in the ground, but that we risk everything for the sake of the cause. I, I heard about a pastor it just man I, I don't know i don't i don't even know this guy's name i just heard a story about him and it just makes me wish that i was like him um I, i'm told he doesn't dress like a pastor he doesn't look like a pastor so already i really like him a lot um he's not educated like a pastor so i really really like him a lot he worked for microsoft which is where any similarities between he and i <laughs> <laughs> end because there's no way I could work for Microsoft he worked for Microsoft he had a six digit income he had 16,000 stock options that were worth millions of dollars in financial terms he had it made and he was set for the rest of his life and God started to work on him and God started to call him and this guy was teaching a kid's Sunday school class so if you think you know well, I'm just doing this for the kids I mean there's really nothing in it for me I mean God's not going to really speak to me no God spoke to this guy when he was teaching a little kid's Sunday school class and from Microsoft he went to church planning God said I want you to plant a church <laughs> so he gave up a six digit salary he gave up the millions in stock options and he went and he planted a church you know what his starting salary was $26,000 when his boss found out what he was going to do at first he thought he was putting him on I mean that doesn't happen in the real world does it nobody gives up six digit figure salaries and, and millions in stock options and goes and plants a church for $26,000 a year that's just are you nuts and then when he realized when the boss realized that this guy was serious about all this he got angry and he said basically I don't know what kind of game you're playing uh, but this needs to end what do you want from me you know, I think the boss thought he was being extorted at that point. It was a bribery thing. Okay, you want more money. How much more money do you want? And he's, you know, figuratively speaking, reached for the checkbook to write the check. How much more do you need? We need you here. Can't have someone that we've invested in like you leave and walking out. What do you need? And he offered him a promotion. And the pastor could have very easily buried his talent. He could have very easily said, well, you know, I can serve God right here from my office and making hundreds of thousands of dollars and have these stock options but God can use me and, and you know what God may very well have been able to use him that way he could have ignored the call and he could have said God can use me right here making all this money 
but he decided to sacrifice everything and listen to the prayer he prayed he asked God to give him one soul one to Christ for every stock option he gave up 16,000 Lord I'll trade you I'll trade you souls for stock options how's that you just give me a soul for every stock option I give up I'll be happy not long after that the church rented a, a water park for the day well I shouldn't say not long after that I, I, it would take a little bit of time for this to happen I think but but if you'd been there that day at the water park what you would have seen is you would have seen this church come together and they baptized literally hundreds of people at the water park so they were going to have like a baptism service they played all day and at the end of it I'm, I imagine they had some kind of vesper service and then they had a baptism service in the big pool is the way I imagine this happening and there were hundreds of people that gave their life to Christ now think about this for a minute think about the people who were baptized that day and the life change that happened think about the, the families of the people who were baptized that day and the life change that they were witness to and the way it changed their life think about this generationally how grandpa getting baptized affects the son affects the grandson affects the great great grandson who will be raised in a christian home who will be raised in a christian home who will be raised in a christian home how generationally speaking one person coming to christ can have a, a, a huge impact on the arc of a generational line of a family there are thousands of people now who get their spiritual nourishment from this pastor and the church that he started thousands have made decisions to follow Christ this pastor has impacted thousands and it all started with him taking a risk it all started with him saying Lord <laughs> you cannot be serious God said no oh, I'm dead serious if he doesn't take the risk it all goes away you can study a kind of history called counterfactual theory counterfactual theory asks the question what if something didn't happen or what if something had happened a different way there's a whole there, there are books written on the idea of counterfactual theory and if you apply counterfactual theory to that pastor and ask what if he had not done what God called him to do for starters that water park doesn't get rented out that day and hundreds of people aren't baptized into Christ that pastor is a lion chaser he's a risk taker there were no guarantees on the front end that if he gave all this stuff up that he was going to uh, see that kind of success with his church there's no kind of guarantee I mean he could fall flat on his face but God's blessed him we need to think like shareholders in the kingdom of heaven because that's really what we are what we are every penny that we tithe every second that we give up and we invest in kingdom work in some way everything we do that we give to god and say god i want you to have this this is something that you've given to me whether it's time or energy talents money whatever it is lord i want you to have it because you're what you're doing is you're investing in heaven paul was thanking the philippian church and he's, he's, he's thanking them 
for the investment that they're making in his ministry. And here's what he says. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. So evidently, when we invest in the kingdom, there is a transfer into an account. And in the words of Jesus, we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And that really matters, treasures in heaven. We don't play this game for a few short years here on earth. Everything we do counts toward heaven. Everything we're about counts toward heaven. I want, we, you know, we, give, we give our money, we do stuff because we want to see other people in heaven. You know, people who aren't Christians, sometimes I think they get really mad at Christians because we seem to be so laser focused on this idea of telling everybody else our message. And it's like, dude, would you just leave me alone? They don't understand that we really believe there's a heaven and a hell. And we really believe that those things go on for an eternity. And we really don't want to see people left behind. We don't want to see people left out. And so we, we strive and we press forward. We need a shareholder's mentality. I think that's what the pastor had. Sure, he gave up $16,000 of stock options in Microsoft, but he has so many more stock options in heaven. And at the end of the day, that's really what matters. Let's zoom this out. Let's look at this from high up for a minute. What happens if you resolve to live your life not in a defensive way, but in an offensive way? What happens if you decide to live your life as a risk taker, not as a risk minimizer? What I mean is, what happens if, if you live your life in such a way that when you come to the end of your life, you say, I, I have no regrets. I, there's not anything that I look back and say, man, I wish I'd done that. Everything that I felt like God was calling me to do, I went for it. I took my best shot. Don't play your life defensively. Play your life offensively. I, I can tell you that my favorite, I mean, defense is great, but my favorite kind of of. I even like an, an offensive defense in basketball. You know what I mean? I don't like to see defenses just kind of hunker down into a 2-3 zone and protect the basket. I don't like that. I, I love full-court press. I love to see teams that, you know, that play mother-in-law defense, constant pressure and harassment. I love that. I mean, I, I, it's boring to me to watch basketball and watch, watch the ball get brought up to half court before any defense gets played. I love it at the end of the game when they start pressing and it's double team and traps in the corner. And I, li I even like offensive defense. I love to see offense that goes up and down the floor. Teams that, that I mean, back in the day, Loyola Marymount, just, you know, they, they were taking the ball out of the basket when the other team scored. They wanted you to score so that they could hurry up and get the ball and run it to their end of the court because they were going to shoot a three for every two that you took. You know, that, that's, that was their idea of offense. I love watching teams like that. I think that's how Jesus lived, and I think that's how he calls us to live. I think that's how he calls us to lead Cross Lane. If there's any secret, let me let the cat out of the bag. We're on offense around here. I, you know, when we have times we come up and think about things, and we think, boy, that, that could be risky. Okay. Taryn Rose is an entrepreneur, and she was, was studying to be a medical doctor, but her passion was designing shoes. 
And she gave up a medical career to pursue that passion of designing shoes. And this is what she said. I feared regret more than I feared failure. Think about that. I feared regret more than I feared failure. For what it's worth, her passion for designing shoes has turned into a $20 million company. When I was younger, before I came to this church, I I cannot say that I feared regret more than I feared failure. I, I definitely feared failure way more than I feared regret. Then I came to this church, and they started dragging me to leadership conferences every time I turned around. We were going to another leadership conference. And one of the first ones that they ever took me to was a conference by a guy named John Maxwell, who has become a huge influence in my life and um, just so many things that I do now I can look back and say I learned that from from those guys taking me to those conferences but the first conference I ever went to I heard John Maxwell make a statement and it just it hit me and it would not leave me alone and it has been something that has stuck with me for the rest of my life he said one of the keys to becoming a leader is realizing that you do not have to survive too many people too many preachers lead churches and conduct themselves in a way that says I'm just trying to survive I'm just trying to make it I'm just trying to make sure that I don't lose anything and they don't risk and they don't try things and they don't go after needed change because they're afraid because they're afraid they'll fail and they're afraid that that failure will result in their not surviving There have been several times that I've looked back on that strategy of, of John Maxwell teaching us that you don't have to survive, and I've thought about, well, how does, what does that mean for me? And then, <clears throat> about seven years ago, I started preaching, and I got the responsibility to lead this church. And, and I, I have said several times, probably to some of you, you know, it's highly possible that one of these days I could get fired. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's possible. But if they ever fire me, They'll fire me because I tried to do something. They won't fire me because I didn't try to do something. They'll fire me because I was on offense, not because I was on defense. They'll fire me because something went <laughs> way wrong in some <laughs> scheme that I had. And like, oh, no, we need to do this. I mean, you'd look at it and say, oh, that, that was a risk, all right. Not because we said, oh, can't, can't go there, can't do that, don't want to touch that. Christ calls us to live in an offensive posture. There's a guy named Ted Leonsis. He owns the Washington Capitals. I'm going to tell you about this guy, and then we'll close. He's an executive at AOL. When he was 25 years old in 1983, he was on an Eastern Airlines flight, and the flight lost control of its wing flaps and its landing gear. Now, I'm not a pilot, but I think that's bad. I think you don't want that to happen. And so they, you know, the attendants are clearing the overhead bins and, and they're, they're having all the passengers assume the, the crash landing position and they're telling them, you know, you need to get ready. And it's probably about that point that they start saying, if you believe in a higher power, now would be a good time to commence prayer. And Ted Leonsis began to think about what he would do if he survived. 
What am I going to do if I make it out of this plane crash alive? And he said, I promised myself that if I didn't die, I would play offense for the rest of my life. 25 years old. He survived, and after he survived, he compiled a list of 101 things that he wanted to do before he died. Do you have a list like that in your head? I don't have one on paper, but I've got a list like that in my head of things that I want to accomplish and things that I want to do, just goals. Some of them silly, some of them big. Uh, and, And every now and then I'll say, yeah, that's on my list of 101 things I want to do before I die. He broke them down into categories. Family matters, financial matters, charities, travel. And he started setting goals. And here are some of the goals that he set out to accomplish and that he has accomplished so far. He wanted to fall in love and get married. Goal number 14, net worth of $100 million after taxes. It's just me, but I'd take that before taxes, you know. It's just me. Create the world's largest media company. Number 24, own a jet. Preferably with wings that work and landing gear that works. Number 35, give a million dollars to Georgetown University. Number 37, start a family foundation. Number 40, own a professional sports franchise. Number 83, produce a TV show. Number 86, invent a board game. Number 92, hold elective office. To date, he has accomplished 74 of 101 things on his list of things to do. He's 50 years old. I love the personal mission statement that he he put behind all this. I want to live my life offensively. I want to go after things. I want to take a risk. See, I think our place is to get to a place where we're not sinning. That's really what we're trying to do. I just don't want to sin. I'm convinced that Satan wants, one of the schemes of the devil is that he wants to get us to a place where we, all we do is we live life in an effort not to sin. And if he can get us there, then he paralyzes us. Then we never take a risk and we don't ever do a big thing for God. And it puts us in a, a defensive posture. That's not the ultimate goal. You can do nothing bad and do nothing good. You can do nothing bad and still do nothing good. He wants us to step out on faith, to be risk takers, people who operate by faith, so that when opportunities come up, we have the courage to step out in faith and say, I'll take the risk. Question, what talent have you buried where are you playing it safe what risk or risks are you unwilling to take maybe God's calling you to stop running away and he's calling you to chase stop running away from your fears and chase after the things that scare you Stop running from uncertainty. Stop running from adversity. Stop running from risk. And when you do, you will discover so many things that God wants to show you and do in your life. When you chase the lion, someday you will hear God say to you what was said to the servants who took the five talents and brought back more 
Well done, good and faithful servant. The more you're willing to risk, the more God can use you. And if you're willing to risk everything, then God can just do amazing things in you and through you. Some of you need to just risk giving up control of your life and give it to Christ. I can tell you right now, that is the safest risk you will ever take in your life. And I can make you a promise. You give your life to Christ. I've yet to meet the person who did that and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. You give your life to Christ, it is a huge risk because he wants control. I tell people all the time, if you look at Jesus as a hitchhiker on the side of the road and you stop to pick him up, he does not want to ride in the passenger seat. He's going to ask you to get out from behind the wheel because he wants the wheel. That's what it means to give your life to Christ, to give him control. Lord, you take me where you want to go. But if you'll do that, your life will never be the same, and it is the greatest risk you'll ever take, and the rewards off that risk, and the dividend, the ultimate dividend that you spend an eternity with God in heaven, it's <laughs> what you call maximizing risk. I hope you'll consider doing that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, I think sometimes as even children, we're taught, and we teach our kids to be careful, and to, and to um, you know, don't lose it, and, and there's a lot of stuff that we're taught that, that is really counterintuitive to this whole idea of being a risk taker. And certainly, Lord, we have to be smart about some of the things that we do. I'm not implying that we just blindly go out and just risk it all. That's not in your plan at all. But, but certainly there are times when you call us to do things that, quite honestly, God, we're uncomfortable. It, it, it scares us. And it's real possible that that's the whole reason you're calling us in the first place is so that we will have to lean on you and depend on you and, and, and overcome some of the fears that we've got. God, Cross Lane really does desire to be a risk-taking church. The leadership here wants to be a risk-taking leadership. I pray, Lord, that, that the people who come to church here become people who want to take risks so that you get ultimate glory. It's just really not even a category of thinking in my mind that this one servant gets called wicked. But in this story, that's how it ends up. He didn't lose a thing, and he's wicked. The one who's lauded is the one who took a hundred years worth of salary and risked. Help us to draw whatever lessons apply to our lives, Father, as we walk out these doors this week. And make us lion-chasing risk-takers for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.